1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Always appreciate you guys spending some time with us and hearing the stories of America's heroes and stories of combat and survival. And if you guys get a chance, make sure you get on iTunes, give us a rating and a review as well. It doesn't have to be a long review, but we appreciate all the love and support that you guys have given the Hazard Ground. This week's guest, another Vietnam veteran, a retired E-5 sergeant. In the United States Army, he was part of Charlie Company in the 9th Infantry Regiment. He was drafted to join the military service during Vietnam. There was a National Geographic documentary on his unit called Brothers in War, and he was in the Mekong Delta in South Vietnam. It is Bill Reynolds on the Hazard Ground podcast. Bill, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Mark. It's, it's uh, quite an honor to uh, to be talking to you here on your podcast. Thank you.
1: Well, listen, Vietnam guys are hard to come by. We found that out in doing this. Uh, you know, we, we, It's easy to find the Iraq and Afghanistan guys. They love telling their story. But Vietnam guys are a little bit different of a breed as far as sharing the tales and the things that they've went through. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, as we go through the podcast. But as I mentioned, you were drafted into the Army. I mean, it was a, a very different time back in the 60s when there still was a draft. So tell us that whole story and how you found out you were headed into combat.
0: Well, you know, after I graduated from uh, Cleveland High School, class of 64, in the San Fernando Valley of near Los Angeles, uh, I went straight to work for General Motors in Van Nuys. And I also, that was a night shift job. And I also went to uh, Pierce College, a junior college. And I carried uh, 12 and a half or 13 units, which uh, enabled me to have a, a student deferment because, well, my parents wanted me to get a college education. So I, I pursued it. But after about a year and a half, I, I grew uh, frust- frustrated with my uh, classes. So I thought, what the heck, I'm going to drop out and resume the next semester. Bam, I got a draft notice. Greetings, you are hereby ordered for induction. And and so I was, I got three weeks later, I reported to the induction station. That was May 17th, 1966. And, um, and I soon realized that they were hitting the San Fernando Valley really hard with the draft. And so when I arrived at the induction station, there was there was a lot of guys there from, from my high school and, and from a lot of the high schools in the area. So I found out once we got to Fort Riley, Kansas, about a week and a half later, that the 9th Infantry Division was being reactivated for combat in Vietnam. So we knew pretty much out of the gate what we were headed headed into. And um, I had qualified for officer candidate school, but that would have required uh, spending additional time in the army. So I just thought, you know what, I'll I'll just be a grunt and do the best job I can.
1: All right, back up for a second. So how quick was the time when you literally dropped out of school from when you get that draft notice?
0: Uh, Probably within a month.
1: Like, Like, do you feel like looking back that they were waiting, almost waiting for students to drop out to draft them?
0: Well, I'm I'm thinking that uh, because because they were reactivating the 9th Infantry Division, they needed a boatload of guys uh, to fill, you know, to to reactivate the whole division. So um, my timing was pretty poor. <laughs> and I, don't know if <laughs> I don't know if they were keeping an eye on on uh, college dropouts or not, but I can tell you this: that a, a number of the other guys that ended up in uh, 4th of the 47th Regiment, uh, did the same thing I did. So, uh, you know, we just, at that time, in, that early in, in the Vietnam War, um, gosh, I didn't even know where Vietnam was. It, just thinking about getting drafted, it was like the furthest thing from my mind. And, um, but boy, <laughs> that draft notice arrived in, in my mailbox. And, uh, you know, within three weeks, I'm I'm reporting for duty.
1: That's weird. Turn
0: my that, world upside down. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's weird that you say that dra- being drafted was the furthest thing from your mind. Listen, I, I obviously wasn't alive in the sixties. My parents were, you know, not even were teenagers when the Vietnam War was going on. So, but I, I guess you know when you read, you always think about it. You see movies, you know, during that time, everyone was every male was paranoid about being drafted. So it's like it, it almost it begs the question: Why in the hell would you get out of school knowing that that draft was a possibility <laughs> if you didn't want to go into combat?
0: <laughs> uh yeah well i guess i was a lame brain but <laughs> look i was <laughs> i was working at general motors i was i was earning the money that men were making raising families and in those days women didn't work and and here i am an 18 year old kid going on 19 i bought a brand new 1965 chevelle malibu super sport four speed 327, oh. and i had a beautiful girlfriend I was making good money. I was still living at home, you know, going to school, and I, I wasn't paying attention. I was, I was living the good life, and and uh, you know, dropping out of college. I thought, what's the big deal? I'll resume next semester. I just had no clue that uh, that the draft was a big problem, and uh, you know, I should have been wiser to it. But you know what? At the same time, you know, my dad was was a World War II veteran. And, and I was pretty proud to serve. I, I, I was, you know, pretty <laughs> a nervous wreck about it going in, but, uh, but you know what? I was that when we first started learning to march at Fort Riley out in the parade field, I felt proud as hell. I'll tell you that. Wow. Really? Yep.
1: I did. Did it and, make, Did it make it any easier for you that you had fellow classmates there, guys you knew familiar faces? Was that something that made it easier?
0: Well, yeah, it did. There was a guy. There were four guys in in my uh, in my from my high school class that ended up in my platoon, and they um, two of them got out during basic training. I don't know how they did it, but they got out. A lot of guys were looking for ways to get out. I really wasn't. I once I got in and went to basic training. I I wanted to do the best job. I'm kind of a competitive nature. I, I wanted to become a squad leader and you know an acting squad leader so I could issue the assignments to the guys and and uh, instead of you know cleaning the toilets myself I could have them do it. <laughs> so uh, I took to the army pretty pretty well. It's and, interesting uh,
1: that you said that people were trying to get out. I'm curious to know what were some of the more creative ways that you saw that people tried to to get out of basic training.
0: Um. Well, they would act undisciplined. Oh, okay. You know, they would they wouldn't follow orders. They would be a pain in the butt. Um, Yeah, that was mainly mainly it. I mean, there may have been some cases where guys were, um, I don't know, exhibiting maybe a little bit of, uh, I don't know, homosexuality, maybe. Right. I didn't see much of that, but it might have been little of that happening. I don't know. We had a crazy bunch of guys. You know, you get a bunch of yo-yo 19-year-olds together, and what one guy doesn't think of, the next will. It's it's like a locker room uh, uh, atmosphere.
1: Sure. Yeah. So you're at Fort Riley, Kansas, and you're doing all your train-up. As you go through this process, when does it really become real to you that, hey, you know, combat is right around the corner. Like, Vietnam is is looming large here.
0: Well, for one thing, uh, being reactivated was far different than being drafted and quickly trained and shipped, you know, flying over there in an airplane and dropping into a unit as a replacement. We went over as a unit, and uh, we trained for six months, and in early January of '67, we went on a train from Fort Riley to to the Oakland uh, to Oakland to the docks. Got off the train at the docks and got right onto a World War II era uh, troop ship. So uh, by that time, we were gung ho as all get out. We we just knew going to Vietnam, this whole 9th Infantry Division. That by God, by the end of 1967, when our tour of duty ended the war would be over. We were convinced of that, and, and so it was kind of a gun attitude actually, that we had.
1: That, wow, that's crazy. I mean, I, I can't imagine, I, just because I know what combat's like now in 2000 and beyond, in, in the post-911 era, I mean, none of us ever went to Iraq thinking, oh, this thing's going to be over real quick. I mean, if, it, literally, if you weren't part of the first invasion, <laughs> everybody who came after went, we don't know where the end is. So it's just, it's an odd thought that you had. And, of course, the war waged on for, you know, conflict, the Vietnam conflict waged on for over a decade. But the point is that, you know, you get over to Vietnam. Did you still think that when you hit the ground that all of a sudden, you know, hey, we're going to be out of here real quick. This is going to be over?
0: Yeah, we, we did. Initially, that's, that's, that's how we... That's how everybody felt, actually. I mean, you know what was interesting is that when when we boarded the troop train at Fort Riley, we had the 9th Infantry Division band there playing their military music and getting us all pumped up and, and uh, you know, all of the rah-rah-rah music. And, and then when we got off the train at the docks there in, in Oakland, there was that band again cheering us on. And, you know, and boy, it just made us feel proud. And, like, we're going to do something that's noble, and it's ought to be – over real soon, Vietnam, little bitty country, and and then um, and then when we came ashore in Bung Tau, South Vietnam, there was that band again. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was it was almost you know I look back at it and I, and I laugh about it, but at the same time they were spurring us on to to be good troopers and and do our job. But I tell you this, Mark, after a while of when I we started patrolling. And in the horrendous environment there, uh God, the humidity and heat would just kill you. Right. Insects, bugs, snakes—you know, just nasty environment. Uh, you know, reality began to set in, especially when we started losing guys.
1: Well, well, don't get too, don't get too far ahead yet, because I want to ask you a couple of questions. What were you sure. told? Going into the mission, what you were going to be doing, did you know exactly where you were going? I mean, obviously, you said you hadn't heard of Vietnam, so you wouldn't know where the Mekong Delta was, but did you know that's where you guys were headed? Uh,
0: not really. I, uh, maybe the higher levels knew about it. I I didn't really know exactly where we were going. In fact, when we got off the boat there in Vung Tau, they we immediately got on Deuce and a half Crux and. We all had our weapons and our duffel bags, all our gear, our helmets. You know, we all had our helmets on, our ammo ammo belts. We had no ammo, (laughs) but we had our M-16s, and we got on those deuce and a halfs, and they went flying through the countryside, you know, bumper-to-bumper, headed somewhere. We didn't know where, and and when we finally arrived at our destination, a place called Camp Bearcat, uh, not too far from uh, Saigon, they unloaded us in this big old open field, and, and and we had to start digging mortar trenches, filling sandbags, and putting up tents. and And then finally, uh, you know, like three weeks later, they brought some water trucks out there so we could have our first shower in country. And so, so we 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 really we started working our tails off to kind of build up our base camp. And we also had guys on perimeter guard duty at the bunkers around the perimeter and. And then we started patrolling the perimeter, and initially we were in an area that was reasonably safe. Uh, we did have one guy in Alpha Company get get killed uh, on bunker guard duty uh, by a sniper, um, but the area was was moderately safe. So we kind of had we had a little break in period when we when we first arrived in Vietnam, but but uh, that all changed when we moved down into the Delta.
1: You know, you see so many pictures and videos of guys in Vietnam shirtless, just doing whatever they had to do shirtless. Um, and obviously, yeah. you know, it's hot. But go into a little more detail about the conditions there, because, I mean, I, I just related to my experience and everybody who's fought in the war on terror. I mean, and Iraq is, is hot. You know, Afghanistan can be hot in certain regions of it. Some of it can be really cold. But, um you know, we were never taking shirts off. You know what I'm saying? We were never taking our tops off and just walking around. I don't know if it was just a different time then, but, you know, what was the impetus for all that? And, and how really bad were the conditions?
0: Well, it was, it was you know, blistering hot, but it was the humidity, the humidity that would just wear you down. And when we were back at base camp, uh, well, especially when, once we got down to the Delta, uh, it's wet, you're constantly wet, and so we would go out on three, four-day patrols, and then when we came back to the base camp, or we lived with the Navy for a while in barracks ships in the Mekong River, we're we're actually part of the Mobile River Force, uh, coupled with uh, Navy personnel. Um, you're constantly wet, so when we when we would, they'd give us a, a day or two days off between patrols to dry out. <laughs> I mean the so you get around wearing shorts and flip-flops, you know, just to keep your feet dry and to keep, you know, keep, keep yourself ready for the next patrol. It was just debilitating. And we used to say often, you know, going out on these patrols, um, man, if, if uh, the VC don't get you, surely the bugs and the humidity in this damn terrain is going to get you. I, I was, was going to say,
1: how much harder did it make fighting in combat, the conditions that you were in?
0: Oh, got it. You, you know, just just going out on patrol, just, just you know, just out there on a search and destroy mission out in the rice paddies and the jungles and the mangrove swamps that we went into, it, it would just wear you down. And and so when the bullets start flying, well, your adrenaline kicks in, of course, you know, and, and uh, you know, you rise to the occasion. But when it's over, man, you are just... Crashed.
1: I can't even imagine. It just—it's uh you know—you see the pictures, and I don't think any of it does it justice. So, um, your platoon—how big was it?
0: Well, when we arrived in Vietnam, we had approximately forty guys in our platoon, and—and uh, and I'll tell you this right quick. By the time September—that was in January of '67—by the time September rolled around, we we were down to thirteen of the original oh, members.
1: Man. Wow.
0: Yeah, we did have some transferred out, but we had a number killed and a lot of guys, a lot of guys wounded. You know, booby traps, uh, snipers, and several battles that we got into, we, we lost guys.
1: So you, you arrived there in January, and you start to—guys get plucked off one by one for whatever reason. Um, did, when do you get a sense that, you know what, my number's got to be called sooner rather than later. Like, I don't understand how we're going to survive this and get out of here.
0: Well, you know, I for the first several months over there, maybe four months. I, I mean, I was personally—I'm not embarrassed to say it—I was scared because guys are getting hit. You, you didn't even really know where to step when you're out on patrol, go, you know, going across rice paddy dikes and so forth. I was pretty scared that, because guys—we were losing guys, little here, little there, and but after about four or five months. You know, you just thought, "Damn, I'm not going to make it," and and yeah, I just kind of kind of ceased being seriously scared. I mean, you're always nervous and on the lookout, but but and and nighttime was the worst, actually. <laughs> you know, and when you're out on patrol and you got to pull up at dark time and pull a perimeter and pair up with two guys, taking two hour nap and sleeps, you know, each um, man, you're you're alert beyond belief and and so it's just it just scares you at nighttime but you know and then as as the year went by and started to get closer to coming home you start thinking man i'm make it, you know and you start getting scared again
1: it's weird what's what's the worst feeling of the two the initial scared or the oh my god i've made it this far please don't let me die at the end of this thing kind of scared
0: Oh, uh, you know what Mark, I think it's just equally bad. You get to that <laughs> point where where you know where you just are in fear of your life. Uh I don't think there's anything worse than that. A- other than actually getting hit, you know, or having having a buddy next to you get hit, which which happened.
1: Do you wanna talk about that?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, you know what, we had our worst our worst fight was on June nineteenth, nineteen sixty-seven. We uh, we were pinned down in a rice paddy next to a river. The VC were dug in across the small stream, and they had they were dug in reinforced bunkers, and they were literally waiting on us to come across that rice paddy. And I was on point for Charlotte for uh, my second platoon, and we were the point element and when the bullets started flying well it was loud as hell and everybody scrambled to this kind of little berm that ran next to the to the stream, you know where the vc were straight across and guys were initially hit and our medic our each of our platoon medics were doing everything they could to patch up the guys to save lives and um my platoon leader, Lieutenant Jack Benedict, who was a bonafide hero, um his uh, his RTO, Bob French, got hit in the back, right under his radio, and he let out the most blood curdling scream that I still remember to this day. And and then Ronnie Bryan, our machine gunner, um, these guys were right very close to me. Ronnie got hit in the buttocks. And and uh, and our medic Bill Geyer raced both of those guys right after they were hit to bandage them up. And Bill Bill was giving uh, Ronnie Bryan a, a second dose of morphine because he was in serious pain. When when Bill got hit, these guys were right right there with me. Bill got hit under the armpit, and the bullet went straight th- through his chest and came out the other side. Oh man! And it <clears throat> fell to me to uh, to bandage him. And I talked to Bill a little bit as he as long as he could, and he, he eventually went unconscious and and died right there. But <clears throat> you know, I was yelling out to my platoon leader, "Hey, it's a bubbling chest book, chest wound. Do you put the plastic down." You know, and he right. said, yeah, plastic down, and so I, you know, I bandaged him properly as as best I could, and and then finally our third platoon medic, Elijah Taylor, came up and uh, was rendering aid to our guys, and by the time he got there, Bill was pretty much gone. So that was that was one of the, for me personally, that was one of the the worst things. I had a bullet blast in my grenade launcher as I was reloading is right in front of my face and a bullet went blasting right through my grenade launcher. So, you know, that'll make you pucker up.
1: Yeah. To, uh, to say the least. Uh, let, let me ask you a couple it, of questions here real quick before you keep going. I, it, Cause I just want yeah. you know, our audience to understand when you say the plastic, are you just doing that to, to cover the wounds? Is it literally plastic that goes over?
0: Yeah. The plastic would go down on the wound. If it's a bubbly, if it's a, you know, you're, it's in the, you hit the, the lungs are hit. This the air is bubbling out. Okay, got so you. Gotcha. Put the plastic down. Yeah, I I kind of remembered that from our. You know, we all had to have a certain amount of medical training, right? Uh, not like the, the real medics had, but but we all learned to do a little bit.
1: How so, close? How close were these guys to you? Because like the way you're painting this picture, I just want everybody to understand. So you have the the RTO, the radio operator who had been shot in his back under the radio, and then Ronnie Bryan, your machine gunner. How close were these guys to you proximity? Because I'm picturing in my head, like, hey, the RTO's to my left, Ronnie Bryan's to my right, and these guys are all getting plucked, and then the medic gets plucked, and how are these bullets missing me is my question.
0: Yeah, well, they were, they were about – French was probably 15 feet from me, and Ronnie was in between me and French, both of them to my left. Okay. My my platoon leader was was off to my right about maybe 15 or 20 feet. He had been hit. Uh, You know, it was a a slight wound. He got hit in the wrist. We had a helicopter come in and land, I'll be darned, right on top of that little berm. And we loaded a couple of wounded guys in there. But then all of a sudden, uh, a VC bullet blasted through the windshield of that chopper and hit the pilot in the arm. And just as he was starting to lift off, and that chopper slammed down hard on that berm, and its and the, the rear rotor swung to one side, and the guys we'd just put on there cons- went sliding right out. Oh wow! And and then we had uh, we had another chopper land about a hundred feet, hundred yards back, and I could see some of our guys, wounded guys, uh, scrambling to get on it and it went up about 125 or 50 feet, and it got hit, and that chopper started jerking all around in the air trying to go, and we were all yelling, go, 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 and, and, and that thing came right down, and one of our guys, Forrest Ramos, actually fell out of the chopper, and the chopper came down right on him. We lost all those guys.
1: Oh, my God. And you saw that mm-hmm. whole thing happen?
0: Yeah, yeah sure did somewhere along the line right in there the uh a sniper you know was pro- he probably had my head in his sights and i might have leaned back a little bit as i reloaded my m79 mm-hmm. and because that bullet went straight through the barrel and uh rendered that weapon useless so that was uh, you know that was a hairy day and you know finally as the battle wore on i mean we we're calling in artillery there's jets coming in. I mean, we we're pounding the other side of of the river, and you know, they're starting to wear the enemy down. And 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 then pretty soon the call came from our company commander to um, to pull back to the boats because we were we were living with the navy at that time. They took us out on these landing craft. The World War. War II style landing craft that you'd see on Saving Private Ryan. Right. Only these things were were upgraded with rebar on the side to keep RPGs from blasting through the through the hull, and they had uh, canvas covers on them. But we were we were called by the company commander to pull back that we were going to load on the, the Tango, we called them, and they were going to take us across the river to assault the uh, the enemy position. And and by the time we that happened. I was probably on my third m sixteen because they're jamming up and and little did I know that when we assaulted the other side of the river I'm carrying an m sixteen that's faulty and and I didn't realize it until I saw a vC and tried to shoot them and I could only fire one shell at a time and I had to extract the shell out, put another one in and and then pretty soon uh, uh, and mortars were coming in from the enemy and and uh, Pretty soon a mortar landed about twenty five feet away from me and exploded and a piece of shrapnel went blasting right through my trigger finger as I was trying to get a bullet, spent bullet out of my M sixteen. And that made me madder than hell, I wanna tell you, Mark. Why? <laughs> I was I, I was so mad that I here I am. I should have been able to kill that VC, but I had a faulty weapon. The M sixteens were jamming up and you know, we're in the we're in a muddy environment. And and so, uh, I went trudging back down to the rice paddy dike that I'd just come from the river and going past a couple of my guys saying, Hey man, I'm hit," And, and I, I plopped down next to another soldier next to the river and <laughs> I was cursing pretty badly. I mean, after everything that had already happened that day, and then that happened, I was pretty, pretty, uh, angry. And the guy turned to me, and it just so happens he was our battalion chaplain. I saw a cross on his helmet, and I go, oh, sorry, sir. (laughs) And He he says, go down to the boat, son. They'll take care of you down there. So so I went down to the boat, and a Navy corpsman came out and and gave me a shot of morphine right into my wound. And uh, hell, that about passed me out. (laughs) And And, uh, but by that time, you know, the, the, we had taken the battle to them really hard. I mean, they were, they were, they were ready to pull out. And, uh, and so, uh, I was soon with some other guys taken down the river, dropped off, and, and they, uh, chopper came and picked us up and took us to the hospital. I wasn't in the hospital but about two days. And uh, I had 26 stitches in my trigger finger. So I was out of commission for a couple of weeks, but I I felt bad because our guys, even after that battle, and we got replacements coming in. We, I found out when I got back to the boat that our Alpha Company had lost 31 guys. Oh man! And and altogether, our, our regiment lost 47 men that day. So it was it was brutal. It was really brutal. We had 250 over 250 VC land all over the damn place. They they just got obliterated.
1: Okay, so was, I'm sorry. Let, let me, let me kind of walk through this again. I mean, that, that's just, it, it's incomprehensible that there's that much going on in one day. And, uh, I mean, at what point do you take a breath during this whole thing and just pause and, and look up to the sky and say, God, how am I still here?
0: Oh, I know. I mean, you know, right after that bullet blasted through my grenade launcher, Uh, believe you me, I am, I am praying to God, you know, let me get through this, you know, and I wasn't sure that we were going to get through it at that point in time because it was hairy. I mean, our choppers were getting shot down. Uh, They had heavy automatic fire. They had rockets and, you know, and all kinds of of, uh, weaponry they were using on us. and, And they had us dead to rights. I mean, we were, you know, darn near in the wide open when they first, we were in the wide open when they first opened up guys spread all over that rice paddy. And, uh, we, we lost a lot of most, we had more wounded in Charlie company than we had. dead. We lost 11 guys from Charlie company that day, you know, including my medic, Bill Geyer. And, but when we, when I found out later after getting back to the boat, after being in the hospital for a couple of days, that, that we lost 31 in alpha company. It was just, just like hard to comprehend. There was a, there was newspaper articles all over America about that battle, and there was a, a headline that said, "VC uh, uh, unit decimates American infantry unit." And of course, the article didn't reference anything that we killed so many Viet Cong. We just talked about American infantry unit being decimated.
1: You know that 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 had to chap your ass. I mean, it had to really burn you up.
0: Oh. Yeah, everybody was ticked off about that. I mean, it was it was tragic enough that we had one company lose so many men. I mean, they they it was you know they were decimated. I mean, everybody, 31 killed and almost everyone else wounded. All of the uh, all all of the lieutenants, but one was killed. Uh, or the medics, but one was killed. Most of the platoon sergeants went down. I mean, they lost you know all their key people. I mean, you know, almost all their key people. So it was it was brutal. Well, when I got back to that ship after being in the hospital a couple of days, uh, they put me on laundry duty and paint and you know, I was I'm right handed, so I had to do all that stuff with my left hand and and after a while it got to be pretty irritating and, and I was, you know, felt bad for my, my platoon buddies who were still going out on some patrol. So I volunteered to be an RTO. We were short RTO, so I said, I can be an RTO. Surely it's not that hard. <laughs> you know? so, so I went back out, and, and, the, and it, I went back out. It was July 11th, 50 years ago yesterday, that I went out on this patrol with the company. And sure enough, got pinned down in a rice paddy again. And, and uh, my platoon lost four guys that day and including the guy who was in my graduating class from Cleveland high school. Oh man. And that was, uh, that was hard to take because we were pinned down and a platoon leader was telling the RTOs to, you know, you got to get out. We had a recon squad out front. It was a recon squad that, that was killed. And they, we, Jack, Lieutenant Jack wanted us to get out to those guys, and we would try to crawl out there. But it was God, there was just no cover. You just couldn't move. You lift up your head, and bullets are flying by you. And and of course, being an RTO, you know, RTOs are target. So we couldn't get to them. And pretty soon, as as it got towards dark, uh, Lieutenant Jack told us to pull back into the tree line. So we had to sit in that tree line all night. On high alert, looking across that open rice paddy, and then in the middle of the night, we saw this red map light out there moving around, and boy, did we ever want to blast away, but we couldn't, knowing our guys were out there somewhere, and we didn't know what happened to them. So, next morning, it was barely light, and here comes Frank Swan, one of our other machine gunners, and a guy named Henry Hubbard. They came back. Frank's fatigue shirt was off and he had two bullet holes in his, in his body and he was pale as beyond belief. And, and Henry Hubbard had stayed with him and to, to you know, keep him alive. And, and that's when we found out that we had four dead guys out there. So we went out there and, and there they were, they were laying on their backs I don't think Phil Faro ever knew what hit him. He had a bullet hole in his head. Oh man, you know what really got what really got me here's my friend. <clears throat> what really got me was their bodies laid out there all night. It was just hot and humid, right and the bodies were you know bloated, and the stench of death just heavy in the air. It was such a tragic thing to witness, and especially these guys being my friends. And so I was told, along with a couple guys, we had a chopper come in. You got to put him on the chopper. And I, I literally could not do that. I could not pick up my friend Phil and put him on that chopper.
1: Why was that so hard for you? Was it like the finality of the whole thing?
0: Just seeing him laying there dead. I mean, his parents and my parents were friends, <clears throat> and just seeing him laying there, it's like, you know, your mortality just yells out at you. Yeah. And and it was just so sad to see such a vibrant. This guy was was Los Angeles City all all, champ, all city champion high hurdler in our graduating year of '64. This guy was an amazing athlete and And to see him laying there like that was just more than I could take, really. So <clears throat> anyway, I couldn't do it. and my platoon leader, rotten SOB that he was, chewed me out, just telling me I'm dishonoring these brave heroes and and i I carried that on my shoulders for years. And when we started having our Charlie company reunions, I told Lieutenant Jack that story. And Lieutenant Jack said, I would have shot him. <laughs> 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 That's the kind of guy Lieutenant Jack was. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, that that burden on my shoulders just lifted right away.
1: <laughs> wow, Jack awesome.
0: lost both his legs in his second tour of duty. And his, uh, his life was cut short with Parkinson's and, and heart failure at age 70, which is my age right now. And, you know, Jack was, uh, Jack was our hero. And if it wasn't for him, many more of us would not have made it home. So, <clears throat> anyway, you know, for the rest of my tour of duty, uh, you know, there was a lot, of, a lot of little firefights here and there, snipers, booby traps. Uh, you know, you just dealt with all that stuff. And one of the worst places that we had to go into was called the Rung Sat Special Zone, huge mangrove swampy area bordering the Saigon River, where the VC would would hang out and build uh, water mines to to hamper the the shipping coming and going out of out of Saigon. So we had we had to go into that darn place and, and ferret it out because. Uh, You know the VC, and it was just a nasty, dirty, rotten place. We had, we had uh, my buddy Jimmy Salazar walked up on a couple of VC, and and uh, one of them aimed his AK-47 at him, and before Jimmy had a chance, and and man, that weapon jammed, and Jimmy shot him dead. Oh, (laughs) All, all all kinds of little stuff like like that happened. One time I was walking down as point man, walking down this trail, this pathway and uh, my buddy Bob Ellert was about 15 feet behind me, and all of a sudden a sniper started shooting, and I could just feel the bullets whizzing by, but I hit the ground and rolled into a ditch, and 2nd Lieutenant pulled up, and it was like World War III, <laughs> and and uh, pretty soon Lieutenant Jack was yelling, cease fire, and, and everybody stopped shooting, so it was perfectly quiet, and Bob Ellert, who was just behind me, he's laying there on the pathway, and he says, I'm hit, he got hit three times and uh you know it's little things like that just went on you know for the rest of the tour duty well, That went on the whole year
1: how did you and, did you ever get to a point emotionally where you're just like f it i'm gonna die here i don't care
0: yeah oh yeah i i got that got there about halfway through i didn't think i was gonna make
1: it. so how, how do you deal with
0: that you just you know what
1: I mean, did you start taking a, stupid risks or anything like that?
0: Well, I volunteered for point more often than I should have. I felt like I was more alert than maybe the other some of the other guys. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, I mean, I I volunteered to go out. You know, after I was wounded on June 19th, I could I didn't have to go out on July 11th. I could have waited, but uh, you know, you you think about your buddies out there, and you just you just go
1: we just do it you know you see a lot I, of guy a lot of your 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 platoon mates get hit and get killed and you talked about your your high school classmate phil who you know obviously was a very emotional moment for you still is to this day it, does something make one of your buddies getting killed more emotional than another one or is it just accumulation of all those things
0: it's harder to see your buddy laying there dead right I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's painful. It's just, it's something that's, that's with you for the rest of your life. It's hard to get past it. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of Phil's death and and the other guys, my other buddies. Yeah. So, uh, you know, every time these anniversaries come up, you know, I'm on social media. All of our guys are. And you know, uh we're a tight group, us Charlie Company guys and our Bravo and Alpha Company guys. We're tight. In fact, it was all of us who just, you know, went to Vietnam and had the uh, we just had a ceremony on the June nineteenth battle site, read all their names, said prayers. It was it was amazing. We had we had uh, several Viet Cong former VC who were still there in our ceremony. They participated really? in our ceremony.
1: Wow that is unreal and just to, you know for the recording of this is July 11th so you know we're coming up as you mentioned 50 years how did you guys get in touch with the Viacom guys to, to, to show up for this whole thing and what was that interaction like with them
0: well actually uh, see that I became affiliated with the greatest greatest generations foundation um, a year ago March the founder Timothy Davis saw brothers in war and through the through the last part of that documentary i'm seeing i'm the first veteran speaking in the documentary by the way and and uh the, they interviewed about 11 of us and at the end of the documentary they have uh, have me on the at my op- in my office here at home uh, looking at my computer and i had my ninth infantry division dot com website up and so This fellow, Timothy Davis, watched the documentary, and then he sent me an email, and then we spoke on the phone. This was March of last year, and six weeks later, myself and three of the other guys seen in that documentary are walking around in Vietnam, retracing our footsteps.
1: How hard was that?
0: Well, I had been back in 2007. I, I led a group for our 40th anniversary of that June 19th battle. So, I, and I, I told Timothy Davis, you know, I, I know where we should go when we go back to Vietnam, uh, you know, because I had an itinerary for, for my uh, 2007 trip. So, um, for me, I don't know. You know something, Mark, it's, it's crazy, but I really like that country. I like the people. Uh, there's something about it that I'm just drawn to it. And and so for me now, when I go back with the with the other guys, uh, you know, I know how they're going to feel. I know how they how I felt when I first went back. And so it, my pleasure is being with guys and seeing, you know, being there for them, <clears throat> retracing our footsteps in the in those, you know, those god awful days that we had. There's something about it that that I'm drawn to.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's got to be cathartic uh, to a certain extent. But what was the it what was the like interacting with the former VC guys? I mean, it, was there any animosity still? I mean, I, I don't know what that would be like.
0: No, there's 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 none. And here's how it went down. See, so so in in April of last year, we we were on the June 19th battle site, and the four of us veterans who served together there in the, in, in the Charlie Company, we we planted a cross with the 9th infantry division logo at the June 19th battle site. And we read, we took turns, we read all of our 47 names. And in the midst of the villagers that were standing around, there was this one little guy who was, who had crummy shoes on crummy shorts, no shirt. And he had scars on his body. And our tour guide asked him, Hey, how'd you get those scars? And he said that, uh, that he fought the Ninth Infantry Division right there on June nineteenth of nineteen sixty seven.
1: Holy and, crap!
0: <laughs> and he got wound, He got wounded by by shrapnel. Well, when our tour guide said that to us, told us what the man said, I took off my baseball cap, took off my miniature Purple Heart, and presented it to him. And and it was just it just happened, and uh, it was it was kind of a you know it was, it' was kind of a emotional little moment there, you know it's like wow we're we don't have any animosity towards each other here and and then when we when we left that little patch of ground we we were headed back to our bus. We arrived there by boat, but we were leaving by bus and and so as we're walking down this pathway headed towards our bus, this uh this Vietnamese guy was standing in the doorway of this building and he was yelling at us trying to get our attention. He was missing one arm. And so we went over to talk to him and our tour guide asked him, you know, what happened to his arm. And he said that, um, he said he also fought against us there on June 19th, but he lost his arm at a later time, but he had a little memorial building there that honored all of the men who fell on both sides of that battle. He had displays, he had photographs, images in his in his little memorial, including some images that he had copied from my website. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm telling you, when we saw those images under glass in his little memorial there, it was wow. Uh, it was it was kind of a jaw dropping moment, you know. And and so um, anyway, I ended up uh, hitting it off really well with the Timothy Davis. He's originally from Melbourne, Australia. My mother is Australian. My dad met her at the end during World War II, and they got married. I came to America. Uh, pregnant, my mother was pregnant with me, and and uh, so I was, uh, you know, I'm an Aussie American. So so Timothy Davis now is here in America. He's been here for many many years now, and so he and I have clicked. He asked me to go to uh, to assist twenty four. Pearl Harbor survivors for the 75th commemoration of Pearl last December. And, and then he asked me to join his foundation escorting, uh, or taking, uh, nine Marine Corps war journalists to, uh, to the Northern part of South Vietnam, the way and Da Nang areas, did Mm -hmm. that last February. And I said to Timothy, you know, if you're going to do any more of these Vietnam programs, um, Our 50th anniversary of June 19th is coming up. So he told me to recruit 20 guys, and so I did. And we had – got to tell you this. During our June 19th ceremony at that man's memorial building, we had – one of our guys was a medic from 1st platoon, Gary Maybaugh. Gary Maybaugh was – his religion did not permit him to carry weapons. So they made him a medic, and then, after he got out of the army, he became a pastor. And Gary provided our invocation for our ceremony and had a lot of words, healing words to say about you know brotherhood and and so forth. and it was it was quite compelling what he had to say. And then another guy in our in our mix, Dalton Tom out of Las Vegas. Is a Native American. He's a Paiute. And he he does uh, the crying of taps, a little ceremony that he does. And he's got his feathers and so forth. I mean, he's not overloaded with feathers, but he's clearly his, his attire is Native American. And so he did his little ceremony. And then the Vietnamese, uh, the former one armed VC, we call him the one armed VC. Right. <laughs> Uh, he spoke, and our tour guide explained what he was saying. And he was basically saying the same message that Dalton, Tom, and our and our uh, Christian pastor was saying. And 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 then we had a a Buddhist um, incense burning ceremony. And you know, I I wrote an article about it. I'm the director of Veterans Affairs with the Signal Newspaper here where I live in Santa Clarita, and I wrote an article about that ceremony. And and I wrote something to the effect that it was pretty amazing to see Christianity, the Paiute tribal spirituality combined with Buddhism all mixed together right there, saying the same message of healing and brotherhood. It was pretty cool.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm taking this all in, and and the range of emotions of everything is just, it's so wide. I mean— I, what was it like getting to that spot where the battle happened? I mean, you know, post-traumatic stress has got to come in. Like, you, you've got to start hearing noises. You've got to start flashing back to what happened. How how could you not?
0: Well, you know something, uh, Mark? I, I came back from Vietnam, and, and granted that I— it, it, stuck with me for many years about what how my platoon sergeant treated me over not putting Phil in the helicopter. Other than that, I have never had any feelings of remorse, or I've not carried any baggage doing my job in Vietnam. Right. Despite all the death and destruction that I saw, when I when I got back to America, I hit the ground running. I had time. I, I'm going to make up time and and I just got busy. I, I uh, ended up having a nice career with Lockheed Martin. Um, I married a beautiful woman. I've got, I've, I have a nice house. I've got great kids and grandkids. I, I'm telling you, life is so good. In fact, I, another quick story, if you don't mind here. Uh, no, go ahead. In year, in year 2000, uh, my wife and I had the good fortune of uh, visiting Australia, Sydney. And my rel—I have relatives still there, cousins and aunts. Well, my aunts are deceased now, but my cousins are still there. And and so, I, we took my mom, and we we revisited the you know areas where she grew up. And and then we, then Meg and I went up to uh, Brisbane. And while my mom stayed with some relatives, and Meg and I just wanted to go up to Brisbane and stay in the uh, O'Reilly Rainforest outside of Brisbane. If you're ever in that part of the world, do it. It's beautiful. You go way the heck up in the rainforest in this mountain. And so the first day that we got there, we had a really nice bed and breakfast place there. And I stepped out on the veranda just to take it all in. I mean, we're way up high, and the, the scenery was just just a killer view with beautiful birds flying all over the darn place. And and I sat out there smoking a fat cigar, drinking a gin martini, <laughs> a dry gin martini with two olives.
1: There you go. And I'm
0: kicking back and I'm thinking, what a great life I have. I cannot believe my good fortune. And I had just started up my Charlie Company website just in the year prior to that. And I had come in contact for the first time with a lot of my guys. So it was heavy on my mind. And I sat there and I thought, you know what? You have got to live the rest of your life living for the fallen. You got to live the kind of life that they would want for you and for themselves. And, and I just, that's just how I have lived ever since. I I guess I've always lived that way. Um, You just, you get one life and you can't carry baggage because, you know, battle is so damn random.
1: Yes. (laughs) So
0: it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's like that bullet blasting through my grenade launcher barrel. Uh, And yet another bullet killed my buddy Bill and, and seriously wounded my other guys. I mean, it's just to, to carry that kind of baggage when you only have one life, I just have a hard time comprehending, you know how guys can fall into that trap. I mean, I don't know. That's just me. Um, I feel bad for guys who, who, who are messed up by PTSD. It's a horrible thing. We've got two darn many young men killing themselves these days in America and it's just heartbreaking.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, know. we, we talk about it all the time on the podcast. Um, You know, the 22 veterans a day who are killing themselves, it's, it's uh it's something that we all need to take part in to, to help fix. But as you said, it's just it's really hard to spot the problem. You know, that that's the issue. It it, it doesn't it doesn't have a face, it doesn't have a look. You know, the guys who are doing this are or PTSD is a is a silent killer, if you will.
0: Yeah. I I you know I, I I don't know if I'm right or wrong on this, but it seems like it's it's more prevalent with our younger veterans. Yeah. I I don't see this with our Vietnam veterans. And you know, you were talking earlier about how hard it is to get, you know, older veterans to speak up. Well, as I interview veterans in my community here for our weekly veterans page, every Friday we have a nice, you know, big full page of a veteran's story and photographs. The older guys here, they're blabby, especially the World War II guys. <laughs> they are they are blabby, and uh, and I gotta have them slow down so I can keep up with the notes. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, and, but I, I've had a number of younger veterans, Iraq, Afghan, uh, turn me down on interviews. I, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy, but, uh, yeah, the older guys are, you know, ready to speak right up. In fact, I had a veteran call me, uh, last week and say, Hey Bill, he says, I've been reading your veteran page articles. Interview me.
1: <laughs> wow.
0: So, so I went and interviewed him and he had a great story.
1: I mean do you find listen you're an amazing storyteller. there's no doubt about that and you bring a lot of emotion and everything but do you find that there are other Vietnam veterans who don't want to share their story and what do you think the reason is
0: um, I had a guy I met a guy who was in alpha Company uh, who was who was unable to go out on that mission there on June 19th. He was on the ship he was he had been mildly injured so he didn't go out. And I, I did not know this man, but I came in contact. He lives in my community. And I, I bumped into him at, at a local uh, breakfast joint. Real greasy spoon place. I love it. And uh, he came walking in the door wearing a 9th Infantry Division cap. And I went, oh, my God, I got to talk to this guy. And I went over and I said, Excuse me, um, you got the 9th Division cap on. Which unit were you in? And he says, Well, I was with Alpha Company, 4th of the 47th. I go, No way. He goes, yeah. I said, were you at Fort Riley? Were you part of the original reactivation, uh, you know, reactivated troops? He goes, yeah. I said, well, I'm Bill Reynolds. I was in Charlie Company. I says, you want to join me and my son for breakfast? So he did. And this guy, I'm talking to him, trying to get him to to help me out with uh, posting his stuff on my website because I post up photographs. It's all their memorabilia goes on the website. And he started talking, and then all of a sudden he flashed. He slammed his hand down on the table, and he says, I can't talk about this anymore. And he got up and walked away. Well, I want to tell you, that shook me up to no end. My, and I said to my son, Mike, what did I say? And he says, Dad, it wasn't anything you said. He's, he's got some issues going on there. So fast forward about – that was probably that was probably about 10 years ago. Well, when I started interviewing these local veterans, I called him up. I said, "Hey, Harold. How about if I interview you for a signal article?" And he goes, "Okay." Well, we sat down and and here's a guy who I thought wouldn't give me the time of day to discuss all of this stuff. And he gave me a great interview. So, I don't know, you know, I haven't bumped into I haven't bumped into one veteran who's flat out said, "I don't want to be interviewed." They tend to evade, you know, put it off. Right. I, I, you know, I'm going to be going on vacation and or, uh, you know, i got this going on maybe later. I've had a couple of guys, you know, put me off like that. Maybe that's their issue. I don't know. But ordinarily, these guys, well, they see the articles in the newspaper. I mean, it's a full-page deal with all their photos and stuff. And I do it. And I, I write it in a way I'm honoring their service. Right. And— and it makes them feel good, and and their wives are included in the articles too. So it's, you know, I had one World War Two veteran say to me, "You know what, Bill?" He says, "I I look at this newspaper, and he says there's stuff in this in this on this page that my family doesn't even know about," and he had tears in his eyes.
1: It's amazing. <laughs> he came. It's amazing.
0: He came over. Yeah, he came over to the newspaper to get some extra copies for his family. So. <laughs> You know, I've swerved into a good thing in this last year. I swerved into being hired by this single newspaper. By by the way, it's a volunteer position. That's no pay, and and I swerved into meeting Timothy Davis, who I think is an amazing young man for, for what he does. You know, he's he's taken over 4,300 World War II veterans back to their respective war zones during the last 16 years. Really, and. And he's and now and last and myself and my three buddies were on the his inaugural program to Vietnam, uh, April of last year, and and he's been back now three times, and he's got more Vietnam programs lined up, and uh, this guy, as far as I'm concerned, deserves a highest civilian award in the land. He's an he's an amazing guy.
1: Bill, obviously everything has stayed with you. Uh, It's been 50 years, but you recall everything with such clarity, and obviously the emotion is still very raw for you. When you look back on it, uh, what's the one thing that stands out the most to you about the entire experience?
0: Um, I am so grateful. (laughs) This will sound really weird, but I am so grateful that that I dropped out of school and I was drafted and I ended up in Charlie company. It's weird to say that, but it's true. Uh, I have lifelong buddies and lifelong memories that I cherish. The camaraderie when we have our reunions is stronger than it's ever been. And if, and if I hadn't dropped, if I hadn't dropped out of college, Well, I would have resumed, and I would have probably eventually got drafted, and I would ended up in a replacement with a bunch of people that I wouldn't even know or know to this day, which is pretty much the case with so many other Vietnam veterans. Not that many went over as a unit. You know, mostly, you know, after after the initial, you know, uh, troops are in Vietnam, then it was all replacements, and... So I'm I'm grateful for my service. I'm proud of it. I'm I'm proud to be affiliated with the Greatest Generations Foundation and I'm proud to be affiliated with the Signal newspaper and to, to have the opportunity to interface with so many wonderful veterans. The
1: the emotions of everything are still so raw for you. Uh, would you consider yourself healed? Are those wounds healed?
0: You know what, I I don't I don't consider them I don't consider them wounds. I, I, it's it's emotional when I start talking about my friends who who died, who I saw dead. It's emotional. Um, I don't think you ever get over that. I mean, it's not like I'm wake up in the middle of the night screaming or you know that I have flashbacks or nightmares or anything. I don't. Uh, I think I think that I've become really knowledgeable and 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 uh, my memory is is really good about a lot of things mainly because I started this website in uh, you know 15 or no 17 years ago or 18 years ago and I started collecting everybody's memorabilia and they're writing their, their bios and things and and uh, and then there was the book that came out which preceded the documentary called The Boys of 67 by Dr. Andrew Wiest, uh, that's what got the documentary going, and uh, all of us, many of us, were interviewed for the book. Really, a great book, and uh, and then National Geographic was uh, inspired to create a documentary based on that book, and it turned out to be an Emmy-nominated documentary. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so it's just all of this stuff is. I'm veteran. I'm involved in our veteran community here, and involved with the Greatest Generations Foundation. So it's just. Uh, it's it's my life, and I'm grateful that my beautiful wife is so supportive of me doing all of this and being busy. Um, I'm a blessed man. I don't have any baggage of any sort.
1: Well, the website is signalscv.com. That's where that's the Signal Santa Clarita Valley, um, that where where you're posting all these these veterans pages and things of that nature. Also, you can read about uh, your your revisit to Vietnam 50 years later with all of your soldiers. And and I just wanted to share that with everybody because it's such a good story and and the pictures are so vivid and uh, all those things. But, Bill, I I can't thank you enough for spending time with us. I mean, honestly, just what you've been able to share and what you've been able to shed light on for our listeners, I think is so impactful uh, and it really paints such a, a picture, not only of the horrific nature of Vietnam, but, you know, surviving it and what it means, uh, is, is just, uh, it's, it's breathtaking. I'm in awe. I mean, really.
0: Well, Hey Mark, I want to thank you for your service and what you're doing these days. Uh, guys like you are a blessing. So, uh, I just want to urge you to keep up your good work, buddy.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, you know, the podcast is a passion project and, uh, We've had some really good people on it, but, you know, there's so many stories out there to tell. And uh, we'll keep telling them as long as people want to keep telling their story. And I think that's the most important thing for us. I mean, there is just more people deserve recognition for what they've done in their time in service. Uh, and, And, you know, given everything that you go through in combat, both in Vietnam and the war on terror and any other combat you've been through, the least we can do is, is let people know uh, about the service of people and, and, and just the the efforts that they've put in. I think that's the most important.
0: Well, you know, and I, and I want to add to that too. You know, there are heroes among us. I, You know, there are people living around the corner and down the street or next door. You don't even know their story. They're not right. talking about it. Yeah. But when, when people like you come along and do these podcasts and myself interviewing our veterans for our newspaper, the stories get out there. And I, and I tell you, the veteran community loves this stuff, and their families—they just love it. You, you know, it's—it's—it's just—it's all stuff. It's you know, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's all pro-America,
1: good stuff. Absolutely. And, uh, so. Well, listen, we'll yeah. keep we'll keep doing it on our end. You keep doing it on yours. God bless you. Continue to live life to the fullest. Uh, I mean, I just—it's a pleasure speaking with you, Bill Reynolds. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell, and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.